Hey everyone, welcome back. It's Hit Factory, a podcast about the films of the 1990s. My name is Aaron. I'm Carly. And uh, I am thrilled today to be joined uh, by our guest. He is an S-tier podcaster, poster, Canadian. Uh, He is the Toronto-based writer, filmmaker, and the host of the terrific podcast Junk Filter. Jesse Hawken is here today. Jesse, thank you so much for joining us and uh, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Today, our conversation is about one of the best films of the 1990s. We have said that a lot lately. We've been <laughs> we've been reckoning with some bangers on the program, uh, but I think that this one stands as one of my favorites. I think one with maybe one of the greatest legacies and an incredible amount of richness in the film itself, as well as the production behind it, its creators, um, sprawling in all regards. The, uh, the film is the 1997 uh, James Elroy adaptation, L.A. Confidential, directed by Curtis Hansen. Um, and it is, it's a doozy. I'll say that much to start with here. Um, but I am curious, Jesse, just what your history is with this film and, uh, and how you initially came to L.A. Confidential, how your relationship with it has evolved over the years. Well, I have not read the book. My father was a huge fan of the book, L.A. Confidential. One of the things that really needs to be said right off the bat about this movie is that it takes major liberties from the novel. Like it basically uses only the basic elements of the book as an adaptation. But you don't really run into too many James Elroy fans who hate the movie. It's a very rare example of a movie that got rethought in an adaptation, which is what you should be doing when you're adapting a novel. And the mistake that a lot of people make is to try to get the entire novel into a movie. Mm-hmm. We also live now in a period where a movie like LA Confidential could be adapted as a several season long prestige television program. Yeah. yeah. I think they even tried to do that. Actually, They tried twice. There was one that never got past the pilot. And then there was one that never even got past the planning stages. Hmm. Um, I think the Blu-ray of L.A. Confidential features the pilot, which was made in the, I guess, the mid-2000s, before 24, because Kiefer Sutherland is uh, the Jack Vincennes character in it. Right. Um, I don't ever want to see it, though. I don't ever want a, re- <laughs> no. a replacement of this movie in my Absolutely brain. Absolutely not. But yeah, people who love the book and who love Elroy love this movie, even though it is really the Cook's tour of the book because the novel's like 500 pages long. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, it's it's just this sprawling epic. I, I know that Elroy himself, you know, speaks favorably about uh, the film, but but also acknowledges that it's only about like 20% of the actual meat of the, of the, the novel and removes some of the characters despite having kind of that great ensemble. In my research, I found out that Elroy sort of has mixed feelings about the book. Like he certainly mm. promoted it. He certainly talked talked it up when it was a new movie but a couple of years ago Elroy was at the Hay Festival which is a literary festival in Wales Hmm. this was after the death of Curtis Hansen and at this festival he kind of shit talked the movie a little bit Hmm. he said that the adaptation is quote about as deep as a tortilla unquote (laughs) oh boy he also added If you watch the action of the movie, it does not make dramatic sense. I don't care how many awards it's won. I don't like the bulk of the performances. 
but he did like the money that he got. He said, they paid me some good dough to sign over the rights. Money is the gift you never have to return. We should talk about, and this could maybe be for later in the conversation, but I definitely think we should talk about Elroy's public persona and his kind of your your when when you see him on these like late night appearances or you know sort of read quotes from him like that the thing that's so fascinating about him certainly relates to this this film as well is his his sort of desire to play with facade and this idea of sort of getting you to question you know what's real and and you hear the quotes like that and you're like yeah you sound like a cartoon character yes but also <laughs> you are he he also strikes us as a strikes me as a person who um as Aaron said earlier when we were talking talking doesn't suffer any fools right that he's kind of like That's I'm going right. to give it to you straight and mm -hmm. I'm not going to I'm not going to deal with your bullshit which I think makes him idiosyncratic to say the least I'll I'll tell you a little bit more about my relationship to this movie. Please. Yes. Um, so I didn't race off to see it when it came out. I was like, uh, it looks like a prestige film. I don't know if I, uh, I'll just go and see it when it plays at the rep theaters. So I went to the, um, the cinema called the Royal, which had just opened as a rep theater in Toronto. It's a very beautiful old art deco movie theater that became a rep cinema. So my first screening of a movie there was when I saw um, L.A. Confidential. So I just sort of sat down to get her done with that movie. I didn't really have high hopes for it. <laughs> About um, 20 minutes into the movie, that scene where um, it's after the bloody Christmas massacre, where Guy Pierce goes in to basically capitalize on this situation and to use this situation to make sure that some cops get punished and to make sure that he moves up the ranks the way that sequence was put together with the, you know, moments where he's behind the mirror watching and, you mm -hmm. know, we see these people on two different planes of action talking to each other and being aware of the two planes of action and just the great dialogue. I thought to myself something that I almost never think to myself when I'm watching a movie, which is, is this one of the greatest movies I've ever seen in my life? <laughs> Fair question. Yeah. <laughs> like this movie is cooking. Like everything is working. Everybody's perfectly cast. Everything looks right. Everything is flowing nicely. This is why we watch movies. That's how I felt yes. while I was watching it. And that was only 20 minutes in. <laughs> Completely and totally. For for its considerable length and and it's not, you know, uh, particularly like long kind of epic, but it but it, you know, breaches that 2 hour mark. Yeah. Um it it feels almost impossibly brief you know you're you're never uh bored by it you're you're never wondering when it's going to get to the next thing everything feels so consequential the dialogue as you said just kind of pops it it does it just cooks with gas for the entirety of of its like 140 minutes um it, yeah it's it's magnificent and um i had a, a very similar experience watching it for the first time um i i came to this film relatively late in life um like many kids who grew up in the 90s and loved film, I uh, wanted to be the next Quentin Tarantino mm -hmm. and write a Pulp Fiction or a Reservoir Dogs. And I have probably floppy disks and, and CDs full of awful, awful dialogue um, written. That was me just trying to hawk Tarantino. And then I finally picked up a couple of screenwriting books, you know, in, in the late 90s or early aughts. And this film is one that gets taught uh, 
quite frequently as sort of a, a high benchmark of screenwriting, not just an adaptation, but just in in character and and that sort of uh, re- moving to a and so and so and so pro- you know kind of process of of storytelling rather than an and then and then and then process mm-hmm. of storytelling and um, yeah, so I didn't I didn't end up seeing it until I was probably a freshman in college and. Uh, like with many great films that I you know, came to late, I kind of kicked myself. I was like, why didn't I watch this when it first came out? Um, and now I have to watch it like every, every day just to make <laughs> up for it. And I think I could, you know, I, I can watch yeah. this film all the time and it, and it never sours for me. I will say that. Um, so just as an aside, uh, I, I was a spooky baby. Um, <laughs> when I was a kid, I, uh, I was into a lot of strange things, um, one of which was like Victorian era England. Uh, another one was like a Broadway musical, specifically Bob Fosse. And uh, a third was uh, the music and the films of the 40s and 50s. I loved Ella Fitzgerald as a six-year-old child. And I loved Johnny Mercer. K star, like all the people that are on this soundtrack, um, I yeah. listened to when I was a ghost child. And um, so I came to this movie because I I was just drawn to sort of uh the trappings of the era and also the soundtrack was actually one of the things that that hooked me when I was seeing previews. Love the movie watched it over and over and over again when I had it. Uh, I think I actually had it on VHS, not DVD. Um, and, uh, but the thing that I listened to all the time was the soundtrack. Um, I, this was one of my favorite CDs that I had. Like I played it when I was getting ready for school. Like I used to like lip sync to it in my room. Um, the K star sort of like a uh, really, really uh, feature song, Wheel of Fortune, that a montage is um, is set against is like one of my favorite songs ever. And uh, so I say all of this because, you know, I was initially drawn to the movie because I was like, oh, yeah, I love this shit. Let's let's dive in. And then just found myself uh, particularly because um, I was pretty well versed in like the aesthetics and the the trappings of the era, like I didn't even think about it, uh, and I think we can talk about that at a at a later point. I didn't even think about it being a period piece because it felt so lived in. It felt so everything kind of felt banal, uh, and and so too with the music um, that you know there isn't anything in there that feels anachronistic, uh, including the score itself. So, you know, my my experience with this film is that it was. Uh, it was something that I, I came to again and again, again and again and again. Um, and particularly for years after listened to the soundtrack. Uh, and so hearing the music again, after not having seen the movie in quite some time, just, um, was a treat. The other great thing about the use of the music in this movie is that it's not your typical, uh, needle drops in this film. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, that, you hear Dean Martin in the movie, but you don't hear like, ain't that a kick in the head or whatever, you know, yep. the usual yep. stuff that you hear in every period piece. Like the movie's not sweating about giving you things that you recognize directly. They're giving you signifiers of stuff that is period. Yes. And I think that's uh, a thing that the film does really in, in all of its period trappings. I was fascinated watching some, some interviews with 
with Curtis Hansen and talking about his approach to to producing this film. You know, the the soundtrack kind of came about in the very early stages of conceiving the script. So by the time they were on set, uh, he already knew what uh, what songs were going to going to be included in which particular moments of the film and and add a little bit of that kind of thematic depth to it. You know, I think specifically about the scene with with Kevin Spacey as Jack Vincennes sitting at the frolic room um, while Dean Martin is playing in the background, you know, saying smile, smile, smile from from that track, you know, and and knowing that Curtis Hansen gave Spacey the the direction to really channel Dean Martin for his persona as Jack Vincennes. And just thinking about the kind of mirroring of those two things against one another as he's having this sort of existential epiphany staring at a a $50 bill over a glass of scotch. Um, But even in the production itself, you know, it it avoids that sin of so many period pieces that I think are made today as, as miniseries or as films where it makes no attempts to try to make the the signifiers of the time, the pull of the film and its aesthetic. It just feels very lived in. It's almost, you know, it's bordering on banal at sometimes. It it just feels like an era, and it feels like we are immersed in it as a matter of fact. Yeah, I mean, this is a partly to credit Hansen and his cinematographer, the great Dante Spinotti, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. shot Heat, who shot The Insider. He was like yes. the, the last of the Mohicans. He's Michael yep. Mann's guy for the longest time. Mm-hmm. Um, and they made a very conscious decision to dress the set, make it look uh, period, but then put all that period detail in the background. Don't fetishize it. Don't uh, congratulate the audience for understanding that this is 1953. Any sort of attempts in the movie to sort of make it look period, like period visual language, is confined to things like the Badge of Honor TV series and the right. you know the intentional sort of low budget, low rent kind of look of that kind of show. But the film is made in a very contemporary way, but is set in a period location. That's the brilliant masterstroke of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be able to move a steady cam through a really rough Spanish apartment complex in uh, desolate Los Angeles, it feels real because it's almost as if the crew went in a time machine back to 1953, but then made a movie that Michael Mann would have made. Yes, it's wholly immersive. And it allows you to really focus on the psychology, the personalities of the characters, and less on, as you said, the fetishizing of artifacts. And, you know, too, if we talk about the dialogue, we we had just watched um, The Grifters, which is... um, a a very interesting film, I'll just say. Um, But one of the things that I found interesting about it is how intent it is on letting you know that it is doing a thing, right? It's very, it's very much focused on, um, you know, the sort of stylized dialogue of, of, of a noir. It's, it's uh, wanting you to feel like you're in sort of mid-century Los Angeles, but it's, set contemporarily and it was distracting at times for me um despite it being like a an interesting story and and a lot of great performances in it what i love about this movie la confidential is that you know the dialogue itself feels as aaron said you know sort of banal in its in its being of the moment of the time but isn't distracting doesn't uh that you don't find people falling over their lines it doesn't feel clunky 
Um, instead, it feels very much like uh, we're we're hearing the characters talk the way that they would talk. Pierce Patchett is someone in particular who I just um, David Strathairn's portrayal of that character is masterful, and he's only on screen for a few minutes, um, moments, if that, and he's cool and he's calm and he's smooth and he's um and he's really elegant and feels very much like a man of the of the time of wealth and power and and some amount of sleaze but does not like rub that in your face it doesn't sort of like force you to deal with like the costuming of this person it it all just feels feels very matter of fact as we keep saying before we get too deep into the layers of this film, the textures of it, I was hoping maybe, Jesse, that you could take a stab at offering us uh, a brief synopsis of this film. It, it, it seems like a challenge, but I, I was wondering if you would be up for it. It is a challenge This is a, because this movie is so dense. I'll do my best, obviously, but, um, <laughs> you know, like... This is one of these movies, too. I remember when it came out, a lot of reviews said, don't go out for popcorn, don't go to the bathroom during this mm. movie because <laughs> you might come back and it's an entirely different <laughs> plot happening. Right. Because yeah. uh, it's so skillful the way that um, not only did the way that this uh, the, the writers, who are Brian Helgeland and Curtis Hansen, who, by the way, were working on their own separate uh, projects to adapt this film and were put together... Mm. And it wound up being like the most ideal situation of two people being able to sort of synthesize what they're interested in about the book. Like they actually found each other and they worked together very, very closely on the mm. film. And in one of the funny interviews I read with the two guys is they said that they were glad that the movie got made because if it didn't, they'd probably still be getting together and working on the screenplay because <laughs> it kind of consumed their lives. But yeah. they were so simpatico with what they wanted to do and what the brilliant decision that they both made was to condense the easiest way to condense the film is to concentrate on the three cops and to toss out everything in the book that doesn't have the three cops in it mm -hmm. so there's apparently enough backstory on vincennes and bud white to uh make an entire different movie the basic plot of la confidential is that it takes place in 1953 just before christmas is where we begin the story and we are introduced to three LAPD officers, three different kinds of men with three different sort of questions about honor. So to begin, we meet Bud White, who is a cop who's not particularly known for being intelligent. He's a muscle guy. Mm -hmm. He got into the police force because of a terrible thing that happened to his mother. His father murdered his mother. He's kind of a cynical cop. He's probably the only cop in the movie who... Um, we get to find out really who he is and what motivates him. He, the one thing that's kind of funny about this movie is that he's a woman defender, which is, you know, a thing we like to make fun of on Twitter. Like the uh, guys who come in and defend the honor of women and do the, the, the white knights. Uh, yes. Yeah. A white knight. So the one way that you can definitely get Bud White's blood up is to put a woman in distress. So he immediately turns into like a, a raging bull when anything happens to a woman. Or, if or say something woman, about his mom. Or to say something about his mom or to cast any aspersions on women makes him fly off the handle. Our second cop is Edmund Exley, who is played by Guy Pierce, who is a by-the-books, straight-arrow, 
totally uh, motivated to do the right thing, but he has a supercilious idea of uh, integrity that basically makes every other cop on the police force hate him because he will not accept bribes. If anything untoward happens in his eyesight, he reports it. He is motivated by honor, but he wants to be in the LAPD, and we'll get into that later, but this is not a place for an honorable person. No. So he learns some pretty harsh lessons about, you know, situational ethics. <laughs> Our third cop is Jack Vincennes, who's played by Kevin Spacey, who is a, a, a real icon of a real problem that happens in Los Angeles in the future, which is the synthesis between law enforcement and entertainment. So he is a cop who is a bit of a celebrity because he's an advisor on a dragnet-like TV show called Badge of Honor. He is a corrupted cop in the sense that, you know, he's basically not really interested in being a cop anymore. He's interested in being a celebrity and a famous LA figure. And he has agreed to basically sell out the police to a certain extent by cooperating with a local tabloid to do some high profile busts where he's basically given some money on the side to give content to this really unscrupulous tabloid producer played by Danny DeVito. So here are our three cops. There's a violent incident on Christmas Eve in a prison in the holding cell at the police station where some Hispanics are brought in for, um, I can't even remember the details, but they're all rounded up and brought in to the station and some drunk white cops decide to beat the shit out of these guys because I guess they killed or injured a policeman. And Guy Pierce's character, Exley, is on duty that night because he's such a nice guy that he's giving the night, the night desk guy the Christmas Eve off. Mm -hmm. So he's working that night. He sees what's going on. He immediately reports it. They do their best to suppress him from taking any action. But as soon as he's out of harm's way, he immediately reports the behavior. <clears throat> this leads to a, a couple of cops being sent up on charges and the Bud White character loses his uh, gun and badge and the Jack Vincennes character is threatened to testify. Um, he, at first, he says he's not going to cooperate with testifying against his fellow officers, but they use what they know will work, which is his relationship with the TV show. So he cooperates and gets sent down to the vice squad as punishment. And he comes across this. Uh, there's basically two parallel cops uh, discover this strange ring that's going on in Hollywood uh, that is run by this guy named Pierce Patchett, mm -hmm. uh, who's running a, 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 a thing called the fleur-de-lis service, which is mm -hmm. a prostitution ring, which is very sketchy. The women in this ring are women who've come down to Hollywood to pursue their showbiz dreams, who now find themselves working as escorts or working on in, uh, in stag loops who have also had plastic surgery done to look like famous movie stars. What's so cool about this movie is that there are these three par parallel police stories that all seem to be, they all seem to be separate trajectories, but in the third act, they start to converge. We start to realize that Bud White's uh, sort of budding relationship with this one woman whose name is Lynn, who's played by Kim Basinger, who's the Veronica Lake in Pierce Patchett's st stable of um, escorts, 
is uh, she, they're drawn to each other. And what winds up happening is that the Exley character, who also hates Bud White and Bud White hates him right back, mm-hmm. um, they start to uh, converge over this woman. And we also start to learn a little bit more about the police captain played by, by James Cromwell. I would argue the best performance in the movie. He's as, fantastic. As Dudley Smith, who is the very scary Irish, um, Irish-American police captain. And th- what, what really happens in this movie is that there's a murder at a coffee shop that involves one of the cops that got demoted, a really sleazy, corrupt cop who dies in the middle of this bloodbath in a cafe called the Night Owl Cafe. Exley comes across the crime scene, but Dudley Smith takes over the crime scene. And we don't think anything of this, actually, for while we're watching the movie the first time. It seems like, you know, it's just Dudley Smith sort of stepping over Exley's, uh, what he perceives to be his jurisdiction. Dudley mm-hmm. Smith is a, also a cop who, um, he, he recognizes that Exley is kind of like him. He's a striver. He's a political animal. There's a key scene early on in the movie where Smith tells Exley that if he wants to be a detective in the LAPD, he has to be able to answer yes to some very difficult questions, which Exley, of course, won't answer in the affirmative. Like if you had to shoot an unarmed bad guy in the back, though, you know, he's guilty to stop him from getting away. Would you do it? And Exley Mm. says no. So. The Night Owl murder is very complex, and it involves uh, former LAPD cops. It involves the uh, one of the women who's found in the crime scene is also a part of Pierce Patchett's stable of call girls. And, uh, you know, I mean, at the risk of uh, getting right off to the spoilers, the three police officers solve the Night Owl case, quote unquote, because there are these young black men that are identified as being uh, involved in this situation and they are interrogated. They think that they've got the the lead, but then the black uh, suspects escape police custody and are murdered by the policeman. Mm -hmm. So it seems that the case is closed, but something doesn't quite add up for Exley and for Vincennes. And what really spurs Vincennes on to, to try and figure out what's going on is when he inadvertently uh, leads a young male actor who's sort of a hustler to his death. Um, he's arranged with the tabloids to uh, set up this male hustler in a tryst with the district attorney who we've already met in the movie, who is a closet case. Vincennes has a sort of, uh, he's sort of thinking that, you know, this is kind of bad. <laughs> that he's setting up this young man. So he actually goes to the motel to make amends and make sure that this guy's okay and finds his dead body in the motel. So Vincennes goes to Dudley Smith to um, tell him what he's learned about this young man who was found dead and that uh, that there's some history between Dudley Smith and the two LAPD policemen who were killed. Well, the one LAPD officer was killed in the night owl massacre but there was also a second LAPD guy named Buzz Meeks who is more of a prominent figure in the novel who in the movie is working uh, security for Pierce Patchett who is also mm-hmm. found dead and and Vincennes discovers that Dudley Smith knows a lot more about these cops than he was led to believe so while he's asking Dudley Smith a little bit more information in his house 
about what's going on. Once Dudley Smith is able to figure out that Vincennes is just following a hunch and hasn't told anybody yet, he suddenly murders him in the kitchen. That mm -hmm. was a gigantic shock in the movie theater. Yes. I did not see that coming. And not only that, but it was even more effective because only a couple of years ago, James Cromwell became known to and beloved by all as the farmer of the pig in Babe. He was yes. Oscar yes. nominated for it. He's the most yep. wonderful person in that movie. Like he's such a charmer. He, yeah. And he did get an Academy Award nomination for that movie because that's how good and lovable he was. Yes. And he is scary in this movie, but we don't know the extent of just how scary he is. It turns out that he's actually evil. Evil. <laughs> Total he's bone evil. chilling. Yeah. So he murders Vincennes in cold blood. But Vincennes gets off a little beyond the grave revenge just on the way out where uh, he reveals a name named Rolo Tomasi, which was a conversation that really sparked his moral reckoning when he and Exley are talking about reopening this supposed closed night owl case. Uh, Exley tells Vincennes about this, I, this, the man who killed his father, who Exley always referred to as Rolo Tomasi, i.e. Mm -hmm. this you know, imaginary person, but is the man who got away with it. What's so funny about that scene is Vincennes plants that name as if uh, Dudley Smith uh, would want to know a little bit more about Rolo Tomasi. So when they announced that Vincennes has been killed and that they're going to follow up on whoever did it, Dudley Smith asks Exley if he's ever heard of the name Rolo Tomasi, and that is the dead giveaway. And that's yep. a really brilliant scene because um, when Dudley Smith asks Exley if he's ever heard of Rolo Tomasi, uh, Exley knows immediately that Dudley Smith knows is probably guilty of this and knows something about this. And Dudley Smith, though he doesn't know exactly what Exley knows, knows that he just gave himself away. <laughs> That's yes. how I read that yes. scene. So it's a very, very clever scene. It's like the, just the one mention of the name reveals uh, not only Smith's culpability, but gets Smith's radar going that even though Exley tried to play it cool, he gave himself away too. And when you learn that this is an invention of uh, Hansen's and, and Helgeland's and not a plot point of the novel, I think it makes it that much more magical as well that they find this this kind of linchpin that jettisons us into the final act of the film. It was a requirement for the two screenwriters because they had jettisoned so much of the script that now all this, the 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 skeletal material that that gets us from the beginning to the end of the screenplay is missing some key details. Mm -hmm. The fact that I would not have known that Rolo Tomasi was an invention of the screenwriter is another indicator of just what a perfect screenplay this is and what a great adaptation of this movie that it is. Yes. Uh, it feels completely organic, you know, and to race ahead to the third act is when the various uh, plot lines converge where we wind up at the victory motel. There's a shootout at the beginning of the book, at the Victory Motel that involves mm -hmm. Buzz Meeks and the other brilliant decision that they made when they were cleaning out the uh, basic, when they were stripping the, the novel back down to its elements, they were like, how are we going to end this movie? And then they were like, oh, wait a minute. We can just take the big shootout from the beginning of the novel and put it at the end. Brilliant. I love it. <laughs> so there's this, uh, this epic uh, scene where, um, where, Exley and Bud White are who are now friends. And I want to talk specifically about that scene in a couple of minutes yes. is that they join forces. 
they uh, realize that they've been set up against each other by the mastermind Dudley Smith, who is actually not just the uh, police captain at the LAPD, but seems to be doing some weird takeover of the drug world in Los Angeles. He's arranged to have Mickey Cohen, who was like the leader of the uh, mafia in L.A., is, is in prison. And now what Dudley Smith is doing is he's eliminating all of Cohen's guys and s- stealing his drugs and is uh, intending basically to capitalize on crime. You know, and this is what is so significant about setting this movie in post-war Los Angeles was that's when the population of the city started to boom. That's when a lot of black people who had been persecuted from living in the American South started to migrate to LA. That's when the LAPD became kind of like a particularly racist organization. And, and also when they started building all the freeways in Los Angeles, like all these dark trends of the future of LA and the Los Angeles that this movie was released in, you can see all the seeds there, just the, the, the scariness of the cops uh, and the idea that also the cops are the criminals that there's a criminal organization within the LAPD that the LAPD sort of knows about, but won't do anything about because, you know, how could you criticize law enforcement <laughs> at the end of the film? Uh, Dudley Smith gets shot in the back by Exley, which is brilliant mm. because at the, one of the very first scenes we uh, see Dudley Smith ask Exley if he's prepared to do that at the end of the movie, he sure is. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and, and Exley also um, manages he, he sort of lives with himself to a certain extent. Like he kills this guy cause he's totally worth killing. And he knows that the LAPD are not going to uh, tell the truth about Dudley Smith, because what would that do to society if they did? Uh, he knows they're going to cover it up. He cooperates uh, the way he uh, always has as a striver in the organization. Like he agrees. Okay. I will weaponize the fact that you will not let the truth about Dudley Smith get out by cooperating with you, pretending along with you that it's true that he was a hero who was killed in the line of duty, but I want a promotion and a medal because I'm going to I was also a ranks. hero. Yeah. He's an actual hero. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but he also says, you know, if you're going to make fake heroes, I'll get in on this. So we, over the course of the movie, we see Exley's principles being violated. And at the end of the film, we realize that you know, in in a world where everyone's corrupt, uh, you can still do as good a possible thing as you can, but don't punish yourself for doing so. Mm-hmm. That's the feeling that I got from the film. And I'll, I want to say one more thing about the ending of the movie. I thought the happy, quote unquote, happy ending in the movie was uh, tacked on because I thought that Russell Crowe died in the shootout at the Victory uh, Motel. Mm. It sure looked like he died. Mm-hmm. He's, running up, the he's running, running up to Dudley Smith and he gets shot. We don't see him again in yeah, for the rest of that scene. A, they hold him off for a very, very long time after that, you know, kind of getting shot through the face uh, for, for <laughs> so you know, brutal. until the very, very end of, of the picture. But and he doesn't have an I don't think he even says a word because he seems to have been incapacitated by this violence he's off to arizona with kim basinger to uh you know she's leaving town and he's decided to go with her because they're in love um but it kind of felt like a happy ending which at first i thought was kind of 
you know, well, okay, they got away with so much on the studio picture that I guess they said, okay, Warner Brothers, we'll let we'll let you impose a happy ending on this movie. We'll bring back a guy who clearly got shot to death, and we'll we'll have a happy ending. It was the second time I saw the movie where I realized that it was actually a noir ending, not not the car driving away in the sunset, but the idea of Exley being able to sort of. Um, take what he's been given in, at the end of the film and make something out of it. Like, mm-hmm. sure, okay, Dudley Smith's a hero. This kind of, uh, you know, the true evil that he represented has now left town with his death. I am going to continue to move up the ranks. I will make a difference. Uh, that's a kind of noir compromise. And so I, that wasn't clear to me on the first viewing. The first viewing, I just thought, oh, happy ending that got stuck in. Otherwise, great mm-hmm. movie. But then the second time I saw it, it was like, no, great movie across the board. Even the ending, even the sort of quote unquote happy ending is uh, got a, it's got a barb in it. So it's okay. And Sorry it, for the know, 10 minute explanation of the plot. No, I was going to give you a round of applause. I, that, that was, <laughs> that was a behemoth undertaking. Yes, well done. Um, and I'm missing that, a lot too. And, and I think that's, you know, just speaks to the nature of this film that there is still so much, other other texts to dive into so much other richness to it and and things that can be omitted even in uh, a very lengthy and and very uh detailed explanation of the plot you know the, the this film is one that contains so many depths of its characters and you know we we talked a little bit about the uh take taking the period trappings and sort of putting them in the background and on this watch i realized just sort of how much of this film is told in in close up how much yes. of this is is a very subjective film. Um, we we read the characters' faces more than we read their environments so frequently in here. The use of of all of the the reflections in the two-way mirrors and and in the interrogation rooms and and you know this this sort of very fractured kind of idea of of human nature and of these these men as they're kind of actualizing over the course of the of the film. Um, one of my next questions would have been what your favorite performance is, um, but but I think you mentioned that with with uh, James Cromwell, who is the farmer, who, right, the farmer from Babe. Um, no, he's he's so terrific in this film, um, and and they they all are. It's it's populated with nothing but fantastic performances. Basinger even you know received her her Oscar for this one, and she does a terrific job with that kind of inversion of the femme fatale. Um, but I, I think that you you know you kind of alluded to to wanting to discuss this particular relationship between uh Guy Pierce's Ed Exley and and Russell Crowe's uh, Bud White as it as it happens in in the last act of this film and every time i watch it this is the part where a film that is already gripping just turns it up to 11 for me and everything is going it's firing on all cylinders um, and I, I, I wanted you to talk a little bit more about what your feelings were on on this relationship specifically. Well, you know, to to talk about the big uh, the big moment where they the two guys join forces, uh, you really do have to talk about how much they hate each other throughout the whole yes. movie that leads up to this. And you know, to me, that's just another um, example of just what a tremendous screenplay this movie is, and what tremendous performances he got out of these two new faces. Two new Aussie faces. When they made LA Confidential, they had a budget of $35 million. Curtis Hansen was under a lot of pressure to streamline the movie even further in the adaptation 
to the point that it was you have to choose one of these three cops to make yep. a movie about. Yep. So you either have to make a movie about Bud White or Ed Exley. <laughs> Nobody was asking for the Jack Vincennes movie, actually, but but, <laughs> but they were like, it, you know. But Hanson was like, no, it's the three cops. It's the it's these three cops are basically the three uh, moral paths of being a police officer in Los Angeles, and they're the, also the three paths of uh, morality to a certain mm. extent. I mean, there's the muscle who's actually not as stupid as everybody thinks, but is being used by the bad Dudley Smith to be the bad muscle. Like it's, he can't really live with himself for what he has to do as a cop. Mm -hmm. Exley is the too, too intelligent for his own good cop. So he does things that are the right thing to do, quote unquote, but they encourage everyone around him to hate his guts. Like he will not even take 20 bucks when he's working the desk, which he didn't doesn't even know why he's getting it. It's just it, it's the it's the culture of grant of grift in the police is, you know, if you're going to do a, a staged pot bust on on a movie star and you're going to make a big spectacle out of yourself, slip some money to all the cops that have to deal with this so that if it becomes a headache later, they'll be quiet. And he will not do that. That is how pure he is. He does not want to play. And he immediately, as soon as the violence happens in the police, he's the first guy to snitch. But he doesn't consider it snitching. You're a cop. This is not the way that police behave. Like, he's right on the surface, but he's in a system that, um, you know, ask Serpico, you're, you know, if you uh, <laughs> point out what's not supposed to be done by the police, you're not going to get rewarded by your fellow officers. You're going to be targeted. Um, what's so cool about the movie is that Exley is hated for about <laughs> two thirds of the film by all the other cops. They only start to like him uh, around the time that the night owl murders are finally quote unquote solved. But everybody does. Nobody wants to be Exley's partner when they're trying to solve the night owl killings. And, and uh, you know, they're not setting him up to get killed, but they really hate the fact that he's here because he's Mr. Goody two shoes. Mm -hmm. Um and, and the Vincennes character also, you know, he, to a certain extent, also dislikes Exley. It's the Night Owl case that gets them to sort of realize that they they can both uh, learn something from each other. But anyway, Bud White hates Ed Exley. Like, he took, uh, he got Stens, Stanslin, Stan, what's the, what's Stensland. the, Stensland, yeah. Stensland? Dick Stensland, Dick Stensland, who's really gross. He got him uh, <laughs> knocked off the force for the year before his pension. So Bud White is going to get him someday. And um, even Dudley Smith says, if it takes him the rest of his life, he's going to fuck you for this. You know, yeah. um, he hates him. And at the at the incredible scene where they um, where they rescue the woman who's been uh, kept in that house, I guess the guys who did the night owl killing, they didn't do the actual night owl killing, but they are bad guys in the sense that they've abducted and have, you know, <clears throat> they've they've assaulted a, a woman. Mm -hmm. who's all tied up. That's what the black guys think that they're in trouble for with the police. They think that they're going to be yes. busted for this woman that they've got in custody in this really, uh, you know, grungy part of town. Um, and I, I think maybe we should segue here because that scene in the interrogation scene is the most powerful sequence in the movie to me. It is yep. pure cinema, the way that it's made, because we have three guys in three different rooms. We have the intimidating spectacle of the entire police crew 
all waiting to try and figure out how to psychologically break these people. You get a real sense in that scene of the just the the embedded racism in the LAPD. Mm-hmm. I think that the movie uh, rides that line. Like I, the book is way more uh, racist language than the movie has. Like there isn't. I don't think the, even the N word is spoken once in LA Confidential. They don't need to because we get a real sense of the of the idea that there's one form of justice for white people and one form of justice for anybody who's not white. Yes. And you also get an idea of the system that has been created to bust um, these suspects who are predominantly black, I will assume, in Los Angeles, where they've got an audio-video system, well, not an audio-video system, but they've got a sound system set up in the booths where they can play the confessions that are going on in one room to the other guys to break them. But you just get this very quiet sense of just how rigged the system is <laughs> that the police run that they can break yes. and divide and conquer their suspects. They, uh, the, the language that they use to break them in this movie is not so much racist as homophobic. And I don't mistake, um, this movie as having homophobic content, like the way that the, you know, they are constantly talking about how, you know, they said that you were a sissy. They said that you gave it up and stuff like that, mm-hmm. that these are just the, the really low crass ways that the police, uh, break people. Um, yes. And the humiliation, like there's this scene where we see one of the suspects is pissed himself, you know, and they're, they're really loving it. And it's a, and, and a kudos again to, to Hanson and and Spinotti for uh, the perfect use of reflections for this sequence, the way that we can see what's going on in the confession booth, all the people watching, everyone's lit well, and everyone's in focus, but there's two planes of action. And yes. to me, that's a metaphor for um, the, the sliminess of the tactics of the police department. The idea that like there's a spectacle, that they are doing this because they kind of enjoy it to a certain extent. Like they're yes. having a really good time when they're busting these black people. And, and the really, really hideous scene where Russell Crowe finally busts into the room with a, and plays Russian roulette with a guy with a gun jammed in his mouth, the whole theater jumped when he just started pulling the trigger over and over again. We Mm. were so afraid that we were going to see this guy get shot right in the mouth. That is such a good sequence. It's so disturbing. And it takes us right to that next incredible sequence where they rescue the girl and they, and, and, and again with police corruption, Bud White murders that guy with no defense and then puts a gun in his hand and shoots a hole in the wall to make it look like, that he had to uh, shoot back. You just get a sense that this is the justice that gave us Rodney King someday that would give us Mm -hmm. the OJ verdict. And Hanson and Helgeland don't even mention that stuff in this movie. But if you've been reading the newspaper (laughs) and you've been watching television and tabloid culture, it's all there. And uh, kudos to these guys for making us all think this stuff subconsciously. Yeah. Yes. I'm I'm so thankful that you're bringing this up because this these two back-to-back sequences I think are you know the the film kind of rests on them and I think a lot of what Helgeland and Hansen are saying about police rests on on these two scenes and and you're so right about the performative nature of these interrogations you know even to the to the effect that Exley is very much approaching this as a a proving ground right you know he he even says to Dudley before he goes in like I'll get them to talk and, and is very performatively showing his tenacity, showing his willingness to, 
use his intellect Mm -hmm. to coerce these boys really into giving each other up and getting the information they need. Um, One of the other things that I I think complicates this a little bit is that that next scene where Bud shoots the unarmed man. And I'm curious what your read is on this, but the fact that he is, you know, kind of childishly laughing at cartoons and eating a bowl of cereal and, and sitting in his underwear there, there's almost a, an element of it that makes me consider that maybe this man has some sort of uh, mental disability that maybe he's not actually complicit in, in the crime and in the rape that's happening that, that the other uh, men who are, are, are at the prison uh, are involved in. Maybe he's just, you know, a bystander. Maybe he's just there and, and not necessarily mentally fully aware of what's going on. And he's sort of killed in cold blood. Um, I, I don't know if that was your read on it as well, but but I think that it, it adds sort of a, a layer of of texture to that idea of of police justice and and of that uh, that willingness to to pull the trigger and to to use violence before contextualizing it and and understanding people's nature or the crimes that they've committed. For sure. Yeah. He, he sort of seems like a potential Lenny from Of Mice and Men, you know, like a sort of yes. um, absolutely a yes. guy who is, you know, maybe they all grew up together, but one of them has mental problems. And the only thing that he can do is to just hold the fort, you know, like he may not even mm-hmm. know that his friends got arrested. We don't yes. know. Yep. We certainly do. We don't know whether or not he's innocent. He might have participated because of peer pressure. Uh, but we know that he was shot dead by a policeman. Like, it's disgusting. That scene mm-hmm. is very, very scary. And, uh, you know, once it, I'm just, all I'm going to do in this show is go on about how amazing Dante Spinotti and Curtis Hansen are. Um, Please. Do you remember um, there was an, a moment in the this film called Visions of Light, which was a documentary about cinematography? Where, where they talked to um, Polanski's cinematographer on Rosemary's Baby. And there's, um, there's a scene where we are looking in the room at some people that are talking in the room and we can't see the people. We can see the room and we can see that the people are probably right on the edge of the doorway. And mm. the cinematographer said that when they first showed the movie to an audience, the audience all craned their necks at the same time to try and look around the corner. And, and, and he said that that is cinematography at its best when Mm. you are painting a picture for the audience and you're, you know, you've got off screen voices and we are so curious to know what's going on that we're actually thinking that we can actually look around the corner at a picture (laughs) and that scene in LA confidential very much. So we are craning our necks as uh, crow is stealthily walking down the hallway because we don't know who's in the other room. We don't know who's watching the TV. We don't know how many people are in that room. We're terrified that there's going to be violence any second now. But the first room that we get to see what's going on in there is the girl, a different room. And then we continue to go down the hallway to uh, the other room where the guy's sitting there watching cartoons. And the only sound that we hear is the ambient sound from outside and the cartoons and this guy laughing away. It's just such a an effective scene, and it's um, it's done so simply. It is, and it's it's disquieting. You know, despite having seen this movie many times, that scene soundtracked with the cartoons, it's just so effective because it's there's this element of perversion, right? You're you're hearing these sort of like wacky 
uh, Looney Tune uh, sounds as Crow is uncovering this horrific just landscape of trauma in this house. And it's um, it's extremely effective. We also have to remember that Russell Crowe, his character, comes from a childhood where his mother was murdered by his father. Mm-hmm. This is a scary. Yeah. This is a scary place for him to be in because it's reminding. It's a traumatic room, and everybody in the room is uh, associated with trauma, including the cop. And I think even like we can talk about the fact that he shoots this man in cold blood. Yes, and that it is disgusting. But we're primed by that point to really expect and anticipate Russell Crowe's character's animal rage that he has, right? And so, and the way he shoots this man, he's very calculated about it. It, it happens in a split second. And, um, you know, it's, it's contrasted, I think a little bit with, um, how we've seen him sort of explode, you know, with these other characters um, prior to that moment, it's a different kind of rage. It's it's almost like so intense that it's focused into this like this narrow beam of light toward this man, mm-hmm. and it is. It's extremely disquieting. Uh, it's a it's an incredible scene. I wanted to bring up or go back to something that you brought up, um, particularly about you know sort of how we can how we can see the the beginnings of an LAPD that we come to know and love uh, sarcastically um, (laughs) by the nineties with Rodney King um, and Daryl Gates being the, the infamous police chief there, of course, who, if we're talking about, you know, the, the sort of the bedfellows of Hollywood and police, we've talked on this show previously about uh, Daryl Gates sort of uh, you know, after he after he left his post as police chief, went and started um, advising not not only on movie sets but also for video games, uh, police yeah. like video games, which is just there's all kinds of shit there. Mark Furman too. Yes. Yeah. What I wanted to bring up was um, just as a, a sort of s- side road is what we now know about um, the LA County Sheriff's Department, which is that they do have. Uh, a pretty extensive network of gangs. You know, when I was watching the film this time, that was knowledge that I had that I didn't have the last time I saw the film. And uh, as you said, the the movie does not have to mention anything explicit at all for you to be thinking about these things. Um, but it does such a good job of showing you the, uh, just sort of the, the, foundational elements of corruption that breed and spread throughout this organization that you can't not think about it. And, and I found myself, you know, sort of after the fact, pondering the, the LA County gangs and also that uh, the sheriff's department had in its early days, a very uh, sort of torrid and messy relationship with politicians and celebrities of the time who were often sort of brought on as like, we're all friends here. I'm going to deputize you. And now you're like a sheriff of, of the LA County uh, Sheriff's department. And Mm -hmm. my, my sort of reason for bringing this up is that um, what I love about this movie is that in sort of painting this picture of corruption that we know now to be uh, very real, particularly with the Los Angeles police department, 
um, that each time I've come back and watched it, I find myself sort of attaching a new real world horror to, to the film. Um, and there aren't a lot of other uh, movies about sort of corruption that I think lend themselves to aging well for lack mm-hmm. of a better phrase, um, so that you are thinking about uh, a lot of the sort of real real world allegories. You know, one, one thing that I was thinking about this time when I was watching it, I hadn't watched it in a few years. I've, I, I know this movie very well, though. Like, while I was watching it, I was like, oh, yes, this scene. Oh, yes, that scene. Oh, <laughs> mm-hmm. this is the good stretch. This is the stretch where I knew that I was in the company of greatness. But one thing that I was <laughs> thinking about this time was another movie about Los Angeles and the past that I loved of recent vintage, which was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes. And one of the most important lines in that film is the scene where the Sam Wanamaker character blatantly says what the movie's about. And it was something that I only saw, noticed the second time that I saw it, where he's telling DiCaprio in the dressing room that period pieces are really about today. Mm-hmm. Because yep. he's making a movie that uh, he's doing that Western that takes place in the you know 19th century and he's got him dressed up in duds, but he's trying to make a point about modern life. And just like uh, LA confidential Tarantino is not banging that over your head. It's there to be realized. Um, yes. That, you know, these are things that upset Hanson. And the other thing that I think that the movie is also saying is about the ever changing Los Angeles I am talking about architecture at this point mm-hmm. because when they were trying to find locations, they had to build what they could build, but there were all these places that uh, had to stand in for real locations uh, that don't exist anymore. Like the, you know, that scene where the pot bust happens with the movie premiere, mm-hmm. there's a movie premiere about two blocks down the street. That's not a movie theater. They dressed the front of a, of a factory that had a clock tower mm-hmm. as the theater because they had to create what was <laughs> lost. Uh, right. I, I think that that was a major concern of, of Hanson's when he was making LA Confidential was he was he had this challenge of trying to make a movie in Los Angeles using the light, the special light that you can only find in Los Angeles, which is also the reason why the film industry set up shop in Los Angeles was <laughs> the way the light feels there. I mean, I, I, I've only been to Los Angeles once, but I really felt the light that I have seen from all the movies and television that I've seen was here. Like the sort of, there's something ineffable about the light in Los Angeles that uh, is directly associated with uh, movie telling and storytelling. You know, it's a challenge because all these things are gone now. There are, you know, there are some locations that I, I like the night owl cafe. Uh, that was a set that they had to, they, they got a storefront and did it up to look like a fifties diner. Uh, mm-hmm. because there's no such thing as a place like that anymore. Like the, I think LA only right. has like two or three of its original cafes. They always use uh, the same one in all movies like training day and uh, seven are all like the, <laughs> yes. the, that, yep. that, that restaurant that's in, that's in, you've seen it in a whole bunch of movies. Cause it's one of the only yes. ones left in Los Angeles. Um, mm-hmm. They had a budget where if they had to, they only had $35 million and they spent the bulk of that money on, art direction and set decoration Mm -hmm. and not on casting because they, you know, they really got banged for their buck though. Everything feels authentic and real, but it also feels a little bit artificial. Mm -hmm. One thing that I thought was funny about watching it today is that 
the especially the the sort of the the really lavish uh art decorated places like Pierce Patchett's place looks like architectural digest kind of a location yes. Yes. but it kind of looked a little bit 90s too did you yeah. get that yes. like it, it didn't it, quite look like the 1953 uh it looked like 1990 <laughs> 1993 it reminded me slightly of um oh gosh now i can't think of the movie um basic instinct yeah yeah of her house she has that sort of hillside a uh, very sleek mansion that's all white um, I and I found myself thinking of of that with Pierce Patches, but I think his house is actually like a an Art Deco. It was it was like a a period appropriate mansion, but it did have sort of and that kind of what you're speaking to though is that while it does feel very uh, very lived in and and I think they do get a lot of bang for their buck with the fact uh, that they were able to sort of entrench us in this time period and not make it feel like costume. They do also, and Aaron and I were talking about this, Hanson's sort of intent on having there be kind of an element of, uh, that, that he wanted to still make it feel modern, right? Like the men aren't really wearing any hats. There, there is this blending of, so you can sort of make that jump. There is this blending of uh, across time so that you're thinking mm-hmm. about, yes, this is taking place in a certain uh, a certain period of time, but also you can't help but, but situate yourself in the current moment. Yeah, and it, I think maybe that is because of the modern style of the cinematography. Maybe that mm-hmm. brings up the modernity of any of the locations that they were in. Because the Pierce Patchett house, when Bud and Exley are walking around in it, did feel like the '90s, like the the headquarters of a bad guy who lives in an Art Deco-y, uh house in the hills today. Like yes. they did yeah. the best they could, but I think that there's probably that's probably intentional because i just i credit these guys as being very intelligent (laughs) in the way that they went about this is that you're you're staging it in a certain time but you've got a modern sensibility towards it um it's also important to point out that this film takes place in 1953 but most of the really third 50s language spoken in the movie is devito's like he's the one who talks Mm -hmm. like he's in 1953 Nobody yes. else really does like they're not, you know, like maybe the spacey character does a little bit, too. But there's no say, sweetheart, like, you know, like uh, Spacey <laughs> says, I need you to shag, go to the reverse directory and shag an address for me. You know, yeah. like that's the sort of thing <laughs> that you'd hear in 1953. <laughs> and a lot of DeVito stuff is like, you know, dear readers, the, it's not all gold in Tinseltown or whatever. Like right. he's, he's he's got that stuff. But no, nobody else really talks that way in the movie. Right. Yeah. This is a roundabout way because I was trying to explain uh, how we got to uh, Exley and Bud White becoming buds, even though they hate each other's guts. Well, there's there's one more thing. There's one more thing I want to bring up as we're talking about this, which I think is actually a good kind of puzzle piece here in in uh, putting together this relationship, which is those those uh, divides being bridged, you know, between the 50s and modern are are everywhere in the aesthetic and the in the clothing and the the dialogue. The one place where it seems to digress is specifically around Kim Basinger's character and uh, specifically in the way they clothe her and, and the sort of like aura that they give some of her pieces, some of her performance. And um, the, the one place I think that they they do really well here in modernizing her 
is in kind of sending up the femme fatale and, you know, like using Mm -hmm. her as a tool that is weaponized by the men often rather than herself being any sort of sort of like nefarious actor. Um, And she's sort of, like I said, you know, part of this romantic triangle that that is a manifestation of these men trying to divide Exley and White. Um, and, and I think that her character is is kind of just one of those fascinating updates the same way that the police corruption, the the systemic racism, all of those elements bleed into this noir that's that's telling about a now of, of 1997 rather than trying to evoke the period so much. True. And, and she also uses modern language like she says, you know, that uh, I fuck people or whatever like she's not you know mm-hmm. uh, she's not uh, an anachronism in the way that she speaks she's uh she's got a, a certain amount of resignation uh involved in her situation but i would not necessarily describe her as someone with no agency right mm-hmm. she she knows where the money's coming from in her life uh, the way that she uses exley in a sort of like this sort of honey trap uh, situation to get some tabloid uh, stuff that she doesn't know what's going to be done with it. Like, I don't think she knows that she's, she's put herself in the situation to uh, get Bud White to go off the deep end. I, I don't think she mm-hmm. quite understands the extent of that situation, but she's a professional, right? This is what she does with Pierce Patchett, who is in organized crime. I don't think she's aware of the cooperation between the police and that as much as this is the way it is in tabloid culture, you know, like uh, yes. maybe it's not even the first time that she's been used in a situation like this. But what what winds up happening is that this is being used. Uh, the situation has been set up basically by Dudley Smith to get Bud White so mad that he kills Exley. Which is where all this stuff has been leading to because these guys hate each other and Bud White can't <laughs> wait for the chance to finally get Exley. And one of the best ways to do it is to drag the girl he's in love with into this situation and to make it and 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 it's a big psyop in the sense that uh, he probably thinks that this was all Exley's idea. Mm-hmm. And that scene is a fantastic scene. The the fight in the files room in the archives where, uh, you know, again, I mean, this is what is so important. This is what filmmakers don't always remember when they're telling stories is that Hanson and Spinati know so well, uh, which is, it's a secret of, of filmmaking, which is put more stuff on the screen than the eye can take in. Put it all in the background. Let's have 500 <laughs> filing cabinets. <laughs> Let's have a big, heavy rainstorm going on outside. Let's have the radio on in the background. Let's, and then, and then, and then, and then this very, very loud uh, sound effects for all the violence and the fists. Like it sounds like two elephants are beating each other up in that yes. scene, but present people with more information than they can process. That's also the secret to a movie that's highly rewatchable. Like this movie mm. is. That scene yes. rules. And one of the things that's so important to me, and I've joked about it a lot on my podcast, is the concept of dudes rock. The idea <laughs> yes. of guys up, uplifting other guys. Dudes rock is not movies about two guys beating the shit out of everybody and waging war. It's about two guys who are becoming friends while doing it. And two guys yes. who actually become friends. And, and, and maybe Aaron and I have this in common, that some friends that we have are people we didn't used to like. 
We've yes. learned to like them. <laughs> and then and eventually you will do something, uh, you will do anything for this person. But when you first met, you hated each other or you really didn't like yes. each other. But something happened in in this uh, relationship that you had with this other person where you realize that you've got common enemies or that people didn't want you to be friends. And now you've realized that you could be friends. And to me, that's a really important thing about men and men, male friendship. And I don't mean it in a sexist way at all. I just mean that we don't see very much of this in movies. And that scene, considering how much work the movie has made to get you to understand that these two people don't like each other, and they've been at loggerheads several times in the movie, but it makes complete sense when when Exley finally gets through to Bud White and says that Dudley Smith set this all up. He wants you to kill me. You know, he he did this. And and you know I'm right. And I love the scene where Bud White continues to smash things <laughs> in the room. Like he throws <laughs> yes. a chair through yes. the window. But you can tell that the gears are turning in his head and he's like, he's right. Mm-hmm. He's right. Yes. And then they calm down and then they talk. And then Bud White says that amazing line where he says that, you know, if you if you do, you know, are you, you're going to destroy everything that you built like this is going to destroy all the work that you've done to elevate yourself in the police you really want to take this whole system down and actually says with a wrecking ball you want to help me swing it and um that's it they're friends now and they join forces and in fact they need each other to get the bad guys because this plan is so Byzantine and evil and so stacked. And that the fact that they're even using the antagonism between these two men to make sure that they get away with it. The last thing that they were expecting was that these guys were going to become teammates and they mm-hmm. need each other to finish the job. It's a, it's a great uh, development in the movie and we buy it too. As soon as it's sold to us, we buy it. <laughs> it makes we perfect totally sense. We totally buy it. <laughs> Yeah. It's it you you feel the catharsis the catharsis that comes after the crescendo so yeah. that when they are when they do come together it is this exhale of like you, it's been building and building the entire movie and to your point Jesse the sort of sensorial overload of that scene is what I think makes the exhale that much more palpable and makes their coming together that much more sensical um, because mm-hmm. you're you're lost in this sort of torrent of of everything that you're seeing in in this fight and also coming with the emotional uh, loads that each of these characters are are bringing to the scene and you're overwhelmed by it and then it really does make sense when that when that catharsis uh, comes and and the after the violence there is that calm and they and they know that they just need to come together and go do the thing it is pretty matter of fact and it's also it's also another indication of that bud bud white is actually a smart man at yes. one point yes. even there's that scene where the two cops even go separately to the coroner to ask questions and the coroner says mm-hmm. bud white's actually a smarter guy than i thought you know yes like, these are all the little drops that are being uh placed on the path for us to follow where we're going to realize that we're going to realize we sort of know, but we are so happy when they realize that they need each other. That's a total dude's rock uh, importance. One thing that I really thought of in the last few minutes of LA confidential was 
not very many American movies get very close to what is one of the great dudes rock uh, cinemas, which is the cinema of Hong Kong in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the, the way that if you watch the killer that uh, Chow Yun fat and Danny Lee uh, are adversaries from, for most of the movie, but then they join forces and they are friends and they love each other and they actually win. Even though one of them dies, they, they defeat the, the enemy and the enemy is coming at them in waves and they still manage to defeat them in what they call in Hong Kong heroic bloodshed, Mm. that sort of stuff with incredible action. That scene at the victory motel at the end with all the guys coming at them and them taking them all down and destroying them and massive, uh, it's violence. That's not upsetting. You know, it's violence. That's fun. It's violence uh, at its most (laughs) acceptable when you're watching a movie where you are watching good versus evil and you're watching good prevail over evil, and you're also seeing incredible ownage, like people getting shot from below the floor. And yes, the, the and, acrobatics. You know, the acrobatics and the kineticism that I, frankly, was not expecting from Curtis Hansen, who I mm-hmm. had thought of up until Ellie Confidential as a Hitchcock light kind of guy who made mm. movies that were sort of in the wheelhouse of Hitchcock, but were not necessarily master of suspense movies, but definitely owed a debt to Hitchcock and sort of um, I hold in great esteem, a Canadian movie that Curtis Hansen wrote the screenplay for called the silent partner with Elliot Mm. Gould and Christopher Plummer. It's one of my very favorite Canadian movies. It just so happens to have been one of the early screenplays of Curtis Hansen. Uh, And then he did bad influence with Rob Lowe and James Spader, which is an effective LA noir, but you know, I didn't know he had it in him when I watched LA confidential, like everything is cooking. And then to top off all the other great things that this movie has done, the violence and the action in the movie is powerful and kinetic and about as close as Americans have ever gotten to a John Woo kind of Hong Kong at its best in terms of Hong Kong action. So we get all that. And that's a modern and that's a modern. uh, That was a very modern approach that Americans couldn't quite figure out how to beat Hong Kong at this because Americans used to be way better at action movies than Hong Kong was. But then but in the mid 90s up in in 1997, by the way, was the year that Hong Kong was handed back over from the British to China. And that was Mm -hmm. actually the year where Hong Kong cinema started to go downhill where they didn't have the creative freedom that they used to have and that they were now having to do the sort of things that the People's Republic of China expect from Hong Kong movies. And, you know, the triads that were involved in the Hong Kong film industry were replaced by, you know, officiants in in the Chinese government and the People's Army and things like that. So it's very sad. Very few American movies have gotten anywhere near that sort of bullet ballet, as they would call. But... LA Confidential sure has it. And, and and like, that's just, it's just an example of how this movie so skillfully uh, balances a classic Hollywood tradition. And then like the cutting edge of, 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 of the, the best that cinema can be at that time. Like, I don't think, can you name another movie from a Hollywood studio in the last <laughs> 25 years or so that gets anywhere near LA Confidential in terms of just pure cinema? It's no, absolutely, absolutely not. not. <laughs> we said that in tandem. No, yeah. it's like can't, a last, can't think of one. No, to me, it's like a last hurrah, and and it's also now, you know, for sad to say, it's also history, right? I mean, this is a great movie from twenty five years ago. Yes. Yeah, and 
thinking of this too, you know, as the the point in time in 97 when, you know, John Woo was now making Hollywood productions and really probably making his last great film, Face Off. Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, Which I saw three but, times. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's terrific. We love that We've done movie. it on the show. It's it's wonderful. Um, I, I have a lot of apprehension around the sequel, reboot, whatever it's going to be, despite liking the, the people involved in it. Um, mm-hmm. But but you're you're tapping into this thing here, this this dude's rock kind of quality to the end of this film. And and I think it's evidenced by, you know, th- these three moments at the end, right? That that wrecking ball line, the line when Bud White is hanging the DA out of the window and he's Another telling thing. Exley, call him off me. And he says, I don't know, I don't how. know how. Yes. And it's a great moment because he's like granting Bud White agency in his violence that he hasn't been gifted by Dudley, yes. you know? And, and also just like so badass. And then at the third juncture here, when they are at Patchett's house and find him dead and Bud White goes to like run out the door to grab the car, turns back around and says, keys. And yeah. Exley kind uh, of Exley flings just... them under his elbow at him and he catches him. I looked at Carly, who at this point was engaged, of course, but I looked at her and I just said, this is the greatest movie ever made. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is just unbelievable like everything about this last act here just like goes and and you're right the operatic kind of like action and the rolling around and and taking it into multiple levels of what is otherwise just kind of you know a a shoddy rundown motel it made me think of like a jackie chan set piece you're talking about hong kong cinema right where you have these like not just acrobatic, but also the, that the, the camera is really working for you uh, with the action. And I was thinking about a movie we had watched recently. Um, uh, I forget. Is it police story? We saw police story one and two. Very one and recently. two. Yes. I can't yeah. remember if it was one or two, but when Jackie Chan comes down a, a pole through a, a ceiling of glass mm-hmm. and you're, you're tracking with him the entire time, and watching him fall and you know when you said kineticism that's like that's the word for this scene you're you're in the different levels of the of the victory motel the glass is shattering the actors are crawling all over the ground it 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 felt very much like that uh that crescendo at the end of a a great jackie chan movie and it's a kineticism and the other important thing about kineticism that a lot of people forget is you are never confused as to who is where Right. During that yep. sequence, as busy as it is reasoning. and how much is going on, you know the spatial dimensions of the scene. You know that, uh, okay, so they killed these guys in the window over here, but then there's that other window over there. Yes. You know, like you're aware while you're watching the sequence of uh, that it's an onslaught that's coming from all directions, but you're also remembering who's been taken care of and who's still out there. Yes. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite examples of the the exact opposite of what you're talking about is the fight scene uh, at the end of Demolition Man between yeah. Wesley Snipes and <laughs> Sylvester Stallone. I oh, was completely deinvested from it yeah. because you have no sense of who's who is where or what bullets are coming from whose gun and it should for all intents and purposes be this stellar showdown between two incredible action stars right who know how to use their bodies and uh and can really can really sell it but it's shot horrifically and you're totally not invested in any of the action none of the punches land and i think about that scene uh when i'm thinking about sort of like 
the wrong way to go about this. And you're right. You you absolutely for as much melee as there is in this in this final showdown, you're you're with them every step of the way and you know exactly what shots are landing and what shots aren't. And it's uh, it mm-hmm. just keeps you there. I want to read you guys a quote from Elroy from when he was more generous about his opinion about LA Confidential. Like, I don't think he's right when he says it's as deep as a tortilla or whatever, or they, well, they gave me a lot of money, so I'm a happy man. Mm -hmm. That seems to be um, like, he should be happy that such a masterpiece was made out of his movie book. His his tune changed a little bit over the years for sure. And, And I think that there was some resentment that started to creep in around people I think knowing the story of LA Confidential more as a film more than in his novel. You know? Well, you want you want to know one other brilliant thing that the writers came up with, and not Elroy, was that scene where they go into the Formosa Cafe and uh, the Lana Turner scene, the Lana, Lana Turner, Turner yes. the Johnny yeah. Stampanato <laughs> scene. Um, they weren't actually an item in 1953, so that's an anachronism. But that scene where he goes up and says, you know, just because you're a, a two-bit hooker looks like lana turner doesn't mean that you're lana turner and uh spacey says that is lana turner that's a really really great scene <laughs> and that is a perfectly in keeping with the kind of stuff that the novel la confidential is is apparently about but that was an invention of the screenwriters so mm-hmm. it's possible that elroy is mad at them because he didn't come up with the <laughs> lana turner part <laughs> like, or the rollo tomasi piece yeah, yeah. Or, or the ending. But I want to read you a very good thing that Elroy said about the movie and the, the sure. adaptation. Very generous of him, and I'll read it to you. He said, They preserved the basic integrity of the book and its main theme, which is that everything in Los Angeles during this era of boosterism and yahooism was two-sided and two-faced and put out for cosmetic purposes. The script is very much about the characters' evolution as men and their lives of duress. Brian and Curtis took a work of fiction that had eight plot lines, reduced those to three, and retained the dramatic force of three men working out their destiny. I've long held that hard-boiled crime fiction is the history of bad white men doing bad things in the name of authority. And they stated that case plain. So that's mm-hmm. high praise. I that love that. Very that's very high fantastic. praise. This leads into a conversation I want to have about Elroy as a public figure and as a storyteller. <laughs> Um, first of all, the man is quite the character. Our, our yeah. mutual, uh, friend, Zach Vasquez re reposted, uh, one of his earliest interviews on late night with Conan O'Brien from the nineties, um, yeah. you know, in the wake of, of Conan's retirement this, this week, um, and him telling a story about, you know, getting blackout drunk and waking up, uh, naked next to a 300 pound woman, in San Francisco when he had blacked out in Los Angeles and Dave Chappelle is there as well. And, and says something along the lines of like, this is the greatest moment of my career. Yes. <laughs> like it's, it's very much a transformative moment for everyone involved, but he even says like, what are you doing after the show? <laughs> like he wants yes. to hang he out. Wants like, we should life. hang out, dude. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you know, he, he is somebody who just in his, his, the language he uses, the way he talks, he always throws in those, you know, dig it at the beginning of, of yeah. some, some tales that he and yarns he's about to spin. Uh, but, but I did uncover, you know, that over the course of his career, he has labeled himself as, as relatively right wing and, and even did a, an interview with the national review, you know, kind of a, a right wing rag 
uh, in the yeah. lead up to the release of, of the Black Dahlia adaptation that Brian De Palma did in 2006. And he, yeah, <laughs> I, I thought so too. Um, but, you know, he, in this interview, is talking about the LAPD, talking yeah. about his turbulent history with them as kind of like a, a what, what what does he call himself? Lean, mean, and barely out of my teens yeah. a lot of times, you know, and, and being kind of like a drunk and, and being, you know, uh, involved in like petty theft and larceny. And, and butting up against the police a lot, you know, them kind of kicking his ass and setting him straight and mentions that he has a tremendous amount of respect for the LAPD and even goes so far in the interview as to say that he felt that the Rodney King riots were a result of a biased media and that it was overblown, that they failed to contextualize it properly and to understand that that Rodney King more or less deserved what he got. And it, it was a really confounding and frustrating thing where I almost wondered if it was a ruse because he, you know, his ex-wife has stated and and he has publicly stated in other interviews that most of what he does publicly is is just for shits, you know, and, and yeah. that a lot of his politics are bullshit. So, I, you know, I, I wonder where that comes from, especially given that quote you just mentioned, you know, white men doing terrible things uh, in, you know, for, for, for this sort of order in these systems and also just how how much of that is in the film, how much of this is, is a, a deep seated criticism of policing and the corruption inherent in, in its form. I, I'm so confounded by it. I wonder what you make of it. Well, yeah, I, I don't quite know enough about the story of, of who James Elroy is. And I haven't even read enough of his literature. Uh, I, I feel like I should actually address that because everybody that I know who loves Elroy I mean, they love his prose and you get, you know, mm -hmm. you certainly get a feeling of that prose when he is interviewed, like he's a showman and a, and mm -hmm. a yeah. very, very entertaining. I, I in that Conan O'Brien clip, like it doesn't even take him like five seconds to start talking about his dick. Like nope. he right. immediately. And Bill Clinton's dick. Yeah. But and I listened to a, an interview that uh, he he did an event in like the Netherlands or something a few years ago where he talked about LA Confidential and the first like 10 minutes is him bragging about, you know, if if you buy my new book, you will get laid with the most beautiful women. You'll have your choice of the most beautiful <laughs> women on the planet. You will be fucking 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Like he's just, he's he's doing this gigantic uh, huckster kind of intro where he sounds yep. like a, a he's a, an entertainer at the circus who, you know, is trying yes. to separate you from your money is his most important <laughs> job. Mm -hmm. um, but, but it's very, very funny and entertaining, but you know that if he invited you over to his house for dinner, you'd leave early, you know, because yes. like he must be unbearable. <laughs> like he yes, may even absolutely. throw you out of his own house after inviting you over. Like, like right. he's probably not easy to live with. Um, and to me, like I, at some point I don't really give a shit about what their politics are as long as the work that they do is solid, you know, like agreed. One thing is for him to say, you know, Oh, Rodney King deserved that beating, uh, you know, and the LAPD, uh, get a, get a bad rap. Uh, you know, what else were they supposed to do? He's probably a, a very rich and comfortable man. And that might also influence the way that he feels about the police. Mm -hmm. The police yep. probably love him. And, you know, he's a celebrity, so he gets celebrity treatment. You also have to remember that this very same LAPD were the ones that were covering up for uh, OJ when his wife would call having just been assaulted by him. 
you know, yep. because he was friends with the cops. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't, did OJ ever say what he thought about the Rodney King beating? He probably didn't say anything at all about it. This was before mm-hmm. he himself was a suspect in a murder. Right. Uh, but uh, sorry, Rodney King wasn't actually murdered, but he was beaten to within an inch of his life. I mean, within an inch no, of his life. Yes. There is no justification for that. And you don't have to be black or white to be horrified by that video. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- that brilliant uh, decision that, that uh, Spike Lee made in Malcolm X to start the movie with the Rodney King beating. Yep. Like, yep. you know, like that was, a f- that was a fresh hell. And, and, and that really set up everything that he had to say by showing, you know, that nothing's changed. Uh, that, you know, the, 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 the torment of uh, the black man or the black woman at the hands of, of the white universe <laughs> is an eternal problem. And, you know, the only what's changed now is that we all have a better idea of how bad it is because this used to happen with no cam- video cameras, no yep. cell phones, no, no texting, no live streaming. So what I'm saying is that El- Elroy can say whatever the fuck he likes about whether or not Rodney King deserved it. <laughs> you know, yep. I don't have to buy it or listen to it. Uh, I'm sure that he's a MAGA guy. I'm sure that there is all sorts of like horrifying uh, opinions that he has about the Trump era. Yeah. But he's a good writer, you know, yeah. and well, like, it does, he's it not, doesn't he's bleed not proselytizing his, his politics in his stories so much. I also think that you can spot Elroy a little bit of uh, relief because he's probably even harder on himself. Surely. Yeah. I would agree. You know, I, a proxy I think of is, is, you know, a gentleman who I've, I've been exploring the works of uh, pretty deeply lately is who's David Mamet, you know, someone yes. who uh, is, is an excellent, you know, surveyor of the grifter and of these very complex characters dealing with crises of faith and, and personality and, and butting up against institutions that, uh, that wish people wrong. Um, yeah. Despite the fact that, you know, he was a Trump guy and, and he, you know, like wrote his, his op-ed piece about, he got big time red pilled, you know, and and that that his politics can inform ever so slightly the kind of narratives he chooses to approach, but that he he's able to tap into something I think more more preternatural, more more deeply kind of human in that experience of of crime and corruption and and all of those things. I, I think speaks to uh, the true nature of an artist, right? That that I, like you said, I don't really give a shit too much about the politics when the product is is what it is, and and when it goes to the the sort of levels and then depths of humanity that it can, that it, that it reaches. So, yeah. Like when, when I read that in 2019, Elroy is shitting on LA confidential. That just leads me to believe that he is an unhappy person. Like how could yep. you be unhappy about how LA confidential was adapted? Like right. it made him even more money. Like that book, that book wasn't even a, a, a it was a fairly recent book when it got adapted, right? Like mm-hmm. Helgelin yes. started trying to adapt LA Confidential as soon as it was published. It took like seven years to get made. There was a mm-hmm. funny interview I read with Helgeland where he went to a book, uh, book, an author's appearance at a bookstore a few years before LA Confidential came out. That's how he became friends with Elroy. He went there and there were three people there. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds right. Yeah. So he got a real opportunity to become fast friends with Elroy. So mm. it's pretty shitty of Elroy to then uh, turn around and say this movie sucks. But maybe he was just being a grouch that day and he just wanted to say something provocative on stage at a book show, you know, yeah. at a book fair. 
But, I think there's um, an element of performance in a lot of a lot of what he does, and we know that he is, as we said, interested in this idea of you know artifice and the double-sided nature of things. I, the and, other thing and, I wanted, and and also not to interrupt you, but like *Ellie Confidential* is also about public versus private. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, precisely. Like, I think like you know, if you think this movie came up on a lot of lists about like great LA movies, and I was like, I don't know that I necessarily I mean yes the name is in the title and it it is uh you know about Hollywood and and there are certainly some aesthetic like the Formosa you know is a very famous um location so there are certainly some aesthetic uh decisions that make it very LA but but what I love about this movie is that I find the location less important because of the geography and mm-hmm. more because of this idea of artifice and mm-hmm. that it it makes perfect sense that this movie would take place in LA because LA is all about this this performance and sort of the the bleeding of uh real and unreal and you're always you know like one roll away from like your what the thing that's going to make or break you and particularly if we contrast this movie with another film that this movie has talked about a lot of uh, a lot of times in tandem with which is Chinatown Chinatown yes a sprawling LA story where we talk about you know the underbelly of the city but intensely grimy right like like a a very dirty grimy look at at the underbelly and what i love about LA Confidential is that it plays the glamour, it leans into the glamour as like the seediness, as the the grunge, right? It's it's sort of dripping with this, the word I keep coming back to is artifice. And, and I love that that makes perfect sense for Hollywood rather than saying like, oh, look at sort of like the dark, grimy, disgusting thing under this table. It's showing that like, all of it is part of the violence and corruption that the the sleekness of you know these headlines and these uh these sets is is all part of the evil that lies in this town what other city could have spawned tabloid culture in the world for instance right. and all Precisely. these people who i mean LA is populated to this very day with people who came to the city to be one thing and to reinvent themselves and became something else and someone else and and not what they had in mind. In many cases, absolutely not what they had in mind. There's a poignant moment where um, Lynn Bracken says that, well, at least we still get to act a little, mm-hmm. you know, in yep. stag loops <laughs> and tricking yes. people into, you know, that you're Veronica Lake or whatever, you know, that we rationalize the disappointments in our lives um it's and la is full of those sort of stories and and in in la confidential there's a tv series which is one of the early examples of copaganda which is dragnet mm-hmm. yep and you know and the only time that we really see uh the set of dragnet of badge of honor is when they're having that little uh party that the da is at the other thing that i think is so funny about the way of public and private and the way that they have that we all have to present ourselves one way publicly when when and 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 we in the audience during la confidential get to see both the public and private lives of all these people so we can see the contrasts i thought it was very funny that the da is uh seen a few times in the movie but he's at that uh that 
party on the set of Badge of Honor. Then the next time we see him, he gets the shit beaten out of him and humiliated by <laughs> Exley and uh, his pit bull, Bud White. Yep. And then he's there when Ed Exley gets the award. Like, yes. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. Exley knows that we just beat the shit out of you to the DA when he's clapping and, you know, so proud of Exley for what the wonderful job he did. L.A. Re- requires those compromises of everyone who lives in L.A. And I think that's a secret other thing that the movie talks about. Yeah. And it also requires an oppressed underclass. Right. Very um, much so. And mm-hmm. and the the other thing that's imp- distinct about L.A. Right. Is that the black and Latino populations of the city actually outnumber the number of white people in the city. But, Mm -hmm. um, but these populations as is the case uh, across America and the world broadly, but particularly in LA and this, the movie shows us this, these populations are chewed up and spit out constantly. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's not just that they're, they're murdered in cold blood. It's also the manipulation the, the two characters who we spend a decent amount of time with outside of the three black men who are framed for the night owl killings are the woman who uh, was tied up in the house and also a man who's uh, boxing on his, uh, his front porch who they go to sort of ask, hey, you know, you know, the sort of crews in this neighborhood, who do you think would be uh, into shooting shotguns and drives a maroon coupe de ville um and both of these characters are used by the police in order to get what they need out of them and move on and we see we see very clearly the tragedy in that the woman uh, admits the woman who was um being held in this house admits that she may have fudged the details about when the men left so that they uh could frame the time or put them in the time frame to get to the night owl on time when the men had left her. Mm-hmm. Um, but she says, you know, sort of who else is going to care about a Mexican woman uh, getting raped? I-, I knew that I had to do what I had to do. And similarly, the man who gives them the information so that they can frame these three gentlemen is squeezed because his brother's in jail. And they say, look, we might be able to to get him out a couple a couple of years early, 10 years early. What do you know? And he's like, okay, well, I think it's this guy. I don't even need to think about it. It's probably this man. And then as they're leaving, he says, you'll you'll get back to me, right? And again, small details, but if we if we go back to your point, Jesse, about it doesn't really matter what Elroy is saying in real life, his stories are really showing the curvatures of the human impact of this corruption, uh, particularly on marginalized groups. Thank you for mentioning that scene, because I want to say two more things about that scene with the boxer. One, Please. the command, the visual command of this movie, again, Hanson and Spinotti, you did an amazing job. Yes. One of the I'm things that I really appreciated about LA Confidential was how much control over the locations that they had, that you, you have this road, you know, up near this house on the hill where the black guy is boxing a punching bag and you can see about three blocks down the way with a car or two on it a vintage car or two and that's what it was like in the sticks in la in the 50s like the the roads the the infrastructure of highways and everything hadn't quite been created yet it's happening in the background during the movie and even pierce patchett has some kind of tangential connection to the opening of the santa monica freeway construction 
but it's a deep for a city that is it's a small town actually la even in the 50s um and it's a depopulated city and and it's nice to know also that you can find areas in la today that look like the 50s still but they didn't really have to do very much to dress it all they needed to do was to control a few blocks of it and to have period cars two blocks down the way and immediately you feel like you're in 1953 watching the movie. I mean, it's just such an economy of means. And I also thought that it was very poignant in this movie where, you know, it's we know that it's like this for black people still. That You know, there are guys who are doing sentences for petty uh, drug offenses that are doing more jail time than Derek Chauvin is for killing yep. George mm-hmm. Floyd. Um, yeah. Or, you know, people who get five dollars, five people who get 10 years in prison for every bullet that was discharged in a crime scene. Yeah. Um, and they say to the guy, you know, your brother's in until 1970, maybe we can get 10 years off that. And in 1953, 1970 is the far future. It's like me knowing a guy who's not getting out of jail until 2045, you know? Yep. But 1970 is a very uh, real number for people of our age to imagine because of all the culture that we've seen from that time. But it's like a science fiction date in 1953 to be in jail for 20 years, 1970, like when the Mod Squad was going to be on TV or whatever. (laughs) It's just, you know what I mean? It's like uh, it it was a long time from then. Uh, It doesn't really feel all that long ago in some ways uh, culturally from now, but in some ways it does for sure. I just mean that that is such a great scene because you get the sense of these cops aren't being full on racist with these black people. That would maybe make a movie be about bigger issues than they have the time to deal with in this streamlined version of the novel, which is lots of racism and lots of homophobia and lots of sexism spoken by the police. Maybe that was just too big a thing for this movie to get into. But you do get the sense of the way that they use black people in the movie, the way that they say, you know, you do something for me, maybe I'll do something for you. And then they do something for you and then you drive away. And you laugh to yourself because we got what we wanted out of this guy because they don't respect them. They don't think of them as human beings. You don't have to like ladle it even further by having them also say racist stuff, but you get the idea of this is a racist world and the police are protecting white people from the black people. That's why they're so keen to go after the night owl killings. And the, the poignancy also that we have to say about this movie is that justice is done in the sense that the right people involved in the night owl killing are more or less, you know, dealt with by Bud and Ed Exley. But these black people were killed for the wrong reason. Yeah. Yes. Like they were railroaded into a, they were railroaded into a gas chamber scenario. Uh, They, it turns out that these guys were bad guys. And maybe in 1953 guys like this would have been the future Crips and Bloods in an LA that was more explicitly a gang world. Uh, But it, but they were punished for ostensibly different reasons. It turns out that they did apprehend a woman and were keeping her hostage, but it was not related to the night owl killings. That's the reason why these guys were railroaded in the first place. It gives you the sense that there are all these crimes that will never be punished that happen in Los Angeles. Yeah. And the way that, the crime that they commit is being black, right? It made me think of um, Bob Dylan's song, uh, Hurricane. Right. You know that song? Of course. Um, It's based on a true story about a boxer who was framed by police for a murder that he did not commit. 
um, that took place in a bar. And there's a Canadian connection to that too, because the the people that fought to get him released from these false charges were Canadians. I did not know that. Yeah. I did it's... know that he had a cohort supporting him. Yeah. No, the, 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 the group of people that fought tooth and nail to make sure that Carter was huh. eventually vindicated were these do-gooders uh, and uh, social activists who were based in Toronto. So... I had no shout idea. Out, Did they shout out to my city for helping to make Ruben shout out, shout out to Toronto social justice? <laughs> uh, did they? Uh, I I I actually don't remember what happened to John uh, Artis, the the other man that they had framed. Yeah, I don't remember either for the purposes mm. of this discussion. But uh, yeah. But in any case, it made me think of that song, and it made me just think of this long history that we have in this country, in particular, of you know. Black men just being framed for uh, not only crimes that they did not commit, but crimes that they were nowhere near, like even geographically, right? Simply mm -hmm. because they're black and uh, the police know that they're an easy mark. They fit the description, but these are also people who think they all look the same. Yes. Exactly. It makes me think of um, an interview I, I watched with Curtis Hansen and some of the special features for this film, you know, talking about coming to the story of LA Confidential and his his reason for wanting to adapt it and saying that I, here I was reading this sprawling, very long, uh, very detailed book and despising all of these characters. And yet the film or the, the, the story, rather the book still by the end of it had me flipping the pages, hoping to know what happened to these guys next transformed in me somehow, you know, when they decided to like be the purveyors of good and like seek justice and in, in whatever means they could, despite their failings, despite their shortcomings and despite the systemic corruption of the institution they worked for. And he said, if I could simply just take the audience on that journey too and get them to start in that place and end at the same place I did, I would have considered it a success. And I think that he succeeds remarkably. Yeah, I mean, it is one of the greatest American films of the 90s. It's one of the greatest American films made in the last quarter century. And I would not have expected it from the guy who made The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, The right. Hand That Rocks the Cradle and The River Wild were big hits that bought him the ability to mm -hmm. make what turns out to be uh, a very personal film. And it's a film that stands the test of time. It got robbed in 1997. In any other year, it would have won all the Oscars, but it was up against Titanic. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, it was It was a, a tough year for everyone against the behemoth <laughs> that was, you know, the a, a James Cameron feature, to be sure. Um, but it did, you know, like like we already mentioned, take home uh, an Oscar for, for Basinger and, uh, and for Helgeland and Hansen for the script as well, yeah. which I think Both is totally incredibly well-deserved. Uh, Spinotti was nominated for Cinematography, uh, I want to mention the Janine Oppelwall was the production designer. She yes. was also nominated, but you know who was not was Ruth Myers, the costume designer. She should have been too. She oh, absolutely, absolutely should have been. Yep. Yeah. Definitely an oversight there in, in a flooded field. She told a funny story about um, the Russell Crowe uh, outfit because she decided to get him in very, very boring, boxy kind of clothes, like he's wearing a brown <laughs> suit. Her idea was that Bud White was not the kind of guy who would think too hard about how to look when he dressed, mm -hmm. <laughs> that he would just put on some, you know, something that fit. 
the characters of Dudley Smith and Jack Vincennes and the DA are are wearing tailor made clothing, like the, they're yes. because they're the kinds of people who would wear made to measure, uh, you know, clothes. But Bud White was the kind of guy who would go to a uh, you know Macy's and buy a boring suit. But they made the decision to put Bud White's uh, clothes to be a little bit small so that you'd see like the big, the back of his neck over the collar that, you, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, and also to get the idea that Bud White is almost like the Hulk that he's going to bust yes. out of his clothes <laughs> that they're on too tight. So they, they, they purposely made it to be a little bit awkward for, for Bud White. But then uh, apparently that year GQ said that the Bud White character was the best dressed man of the year. <laughs> yeah. Probably, I, probably because of the man wearing the I clothes. was going to say, yeah. it's totally Russell Crowe. That, that scene when he and Lynn, uh, you know, first hook up and they're in her bedroom yeah. and he, he takes off his coat and he's wearing one of those like, old like i just think of the my grandpa and one shirts yeah yes Mm -hmm. and it is it is a little bit small and his arms are bulging out of them um but it does work you you get the sense of his uh just really his body and and how massive he is but this is the intelligence of the of the of everyone involved in this movie like everybody is working at the tops volume Mm -hmm. we haven't even talked about the editing in this movie because the editing is so good in this film it's so kinetic and uh and uh you know there people are putting a lot of thought into the mise-en-scene in this film and they're putting a lot of thought into what costumes mean you know that like the kim basinger's character is in these uh most of her clothes are satiny and they shimmer and they almost give off a a quality of light on their own like they're almost like a lighting effect because of the way light bounces off the satin um all this stuff is all going into our brains while we're watching this movie and making it a thicker and more uh, meaningful thing without spelling anything out. It just feels right. Yeah. It does. I think of, you know, to the, the Jerry Goldsmith score, you know, a great, great composer as well, who was tasked with sort of creating the sinew that would make the score feel like it was uh, of Cut, cut from the same cloth as all of these songs that Hanson had already selected to be in mm-hmm. the film. And, uh, you know, apparently using the the trumpet as kind of a key to the motifs because uh, of Chet Baker's work on so many of the songs that were that were in the soundtrack and stitching these things together with that trumpet carrying carrying the tunes through so it never felt disjointed. And Goldsmith is also the through line between Chinatown and LA Confidential because mm-hmm. he right. composed Absolutely. both scores. And... Chinatown is about the future of Los Angeles as well. It's about the 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 problem in 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 terms of developing Los Angeles was about of how to get the water to the city and yes mm-hmm. uh, and and the land rights and all this sort of uh, squabbling about l- the land rights and the use of architecture as well in Chinatown is connected to LA Confidential. LA Confidential. Before I say again that Chinatown got a sequel called The Two Jakes, yeah. <laughs> which isn't a very good movie, actually. But yeah. L.A. Confidential is almost a spiritual sequel to Chinatown. It's, it's another mm. movie about L.A. and about the systems that run Los Angeles, uh, but then moved forward into, you know, a, a, a different era that also tells us a lot about the problems of modern Los Angeles. Yes. It's policing. It's uh, it's unhealthy relationship between uh, show business and law enforcement. 
uh, the, the rise of tabloid culture and the rise of the automobile. So maybe what we need now is a movie about Los Angeles in the 60s. Oh, wait a minute. They already did that. It's called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. There we go. <laughs> yep. A good sort of a, a trilogy there, right, of, yeah. of Hollywood through its eras. Three masterpieces. Three masterpieces. Yes, all masterpieces. I'm so glad that you enjoy Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Your your junk filter episode on that is is incredibly illuminating, and I think it, it hits spot on on so many of the things about that film that I think people took umbrage with and, and why it's still such like a masterful work and, and so open to interpretation. So I, I, yeah, I think that that is an, an excellent idea as an extension of, of LA confidential and, and the place in which it, uh, it sets its scenes. And a movie about movies too. I mean, LA confidential sure is. We should say one more thing before we go though. Yes. How did you uh, process Kevin Spacey being in this thing? Was it difficult <sighs> to see him again or no? You know, we had a lot of, of, well, a large conversation about this. And I, for one, was, it, it was not uh, confounding for me in any way. I, I if anything, saw him and, and how good he is in this film and remembered his run in the 90s of just incredible performances. You know, we've done seven for this show before. Um, of yeah. course, his like Oscar turn for for The Usual Suspects, which is it not a film that I, I love in its whole so much, but I think he's terrific in it. Mm-hmm. And it, it made me long for him in his presence at, at kind of the height of his career again like this. I think that there's I think that there's a couple of different things at play when it comes to, you know, the the sort of fall of of Kevin Spacey's star. Obviously, you know, made some some poor personal choices and and uh, probably, you know, deserved a little bit of a timeout or, or, you know, the, whatever was, was due to him to reflect and to come back, you know, a, a apologetic or remorseful for the things that he's done. But, you know, there's the, the other element of it being kind of forcing him to out himself publicly. Um, and, and also I think that he hasn't done himself any favors kind of returning to the public space, seeming unremorseful, kind of doing that weird Frank Underwood yes. character yeah. in his YouTube videos as well. I think that it, he probably would have gotten off with a slap on the wrist and had, some sort of like late period resurgence and, and been able to come back into a, a pretty formidable career without a couple of those elements playing out the way they did. But yeah, watching him in this, it just reminded me how good Spacey is when he's on. And um, he's he's so terrific in this film. Well, and I have an unpopular opinion about his uh, his Me Too moment, which is that I you know, that's not to excuse the behavior, but I do feel like it was vilified further because it was homosexual. Um, and if you think about all the sort of men in Hollywood that have taken advantage of, of young girls, and it's like a thing that we not only don't bat an eye at, but we often celebrate and, you know, fetishize to a certain extent. And many who haven't experienced any sort of reckoning, like uh, obviously, you know, the, the, the wine scenes of the world are, are facing, you know, their getting their comeuppance here. But, you know, I think about people who are so publicly, um, icky like this like a jared leto or someone like that you Mm -hmm. know who have all these reports about them and who still have formidable careers but it also did make me think of kevin spacey's interaction with uh the hustler character and that you know kevin spacey for much of his career played the role of a sort of ambiguous straight man like even off camera, right? There was all this speculation for many years about uh, the fact that he took his mom to the Oscars oftentimes and uh, and uh, around his sexuality, but that, that there wasn't quite an answer. 
um, until this this story came out about the party that he was at. Uh, and and so I, you know, watching this movie, knowing, you know, that Kevin Spacey had been outed and, and his history, um, I actually lingered a little bit longer on the moments with with Simon Baker's character. That's not to say that I want to I want to sympathize with him, but I did think about what it might be like for Kevin Spacey as a closeted uh, gay actor working on a film where he is very much playing sort of like a Dean Martin type, right? A, a, a ladies man, despite the fact that we never see him with any ladies and that he's, you know, has this moment in this film where he is taking advantage of this young struggling actor um, who's just trying to get a buck and get a name for himself. Um, and it made me a little bit sad, uh, but it wasn't hard for me to watch Kevin Spacey on, on film. Yeah, I was expecting to be more like, oh, God, it's Kevin Spacey. You know, mm-hmm. the way that, like, when you see Jared Leto as the Joker, you're like, oh, God, I yes. was hoping to never have to see this again. Um, <laughs> you know, I can buy Spacey a lot more, uh, even in having to sort of rethink the kind of person that he was. I mean, I was never a gigantic fan of Spacey, and I always thought that it was sketchy of him that he um, never really talked about whether or not he was gay and that it was very cynical of him to only mention it for the first time when he got in shit for mm-hmm. bad behavior and sexual assault. Like the, yeah. that's a really terrible message to send out to be cute about your, uh, you know, your sexuality and then, uh, and then to use it to protect yourself when you are now in trouble for something you did, <laughs> something he's yes. done many times. I also read an interview where uh, Guy Pierce got some gasps. He went on an Australian talk show to um, a few years ago, a couple of years ago, after the Spacey stuff. He was on a chat show, and the host asked him about, were there any issues on the set of LA Confidential? Uh, Pierce said, uh, quote, he said, yeah, um, tough one to talk about at the moment. Amazing actor, incredible actor. Mm, a slightly difficult time with Kevin. But he's a handsy guy. But thankfully, I was 29 and not 14. Ooh. Oh, boy. Uh, Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. You know? <laughs> oh, um, so, you know, it's, again, separating the art from the artist. I, I, I'm also, I've always hated American beauty. I don't know what you guys think about it, but I always hated it. And so I'm glad that it's tough for people to watch American beauty now because it should be. But, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> But on the other hand... Uh, I think that I can handle Spacey in a movie when he's playing somebody who's morally compromised. And so it didn't bother me too much. He's a good actor in the movie and he has one of the best death scenes in the movies. His death is a brilliant piece of acting. Do you know how he did it? How he, how the light went out of his eyes? Cause I, I heard a a story from him that he really needed something to focus on in the background and had somebody, yeah, paint for him some some dots on a wall he needed something to look at because it was made doubly hard because dudley smith is hanging right in front of his face so how's he right how is the light supposed to go out of his eyes if there's a face right in front of your face so yeah he had the crew paint something for him to stare at on on the wall and he just locked eyes with it and let his uh, facial muscles drop and it, it's a, and they didn't even freeze frame it it looks like a freeze frame but it's acting mm-hmm. you know and so he's yeah. you know he's a good actor just he like is. James Elroy is a good writer. 
<laughs> yeah. some other All these problematic things. white dudes. It's one of those things where it's like when you start to, you know, bring in the, the personality of an artist or a creator into, you know, and, and, and couple that with their body of work. I, I just always believe that there's always going to be something about that person that I find despicable or, or that I take umbrage with in some capacity. So I try not to do it too often, you know, and, and I still, you know, want to enjoy Rosemary's Baby in Chinatown and, and separate yeah. that, of course, from the person who created it. Yes. Yeah. Like at some point, I'm definitely doing a, a podcast episode about Bitter Moon, the Polanski movie, which is mm-hmm. one of my very favorite, uh, you know, grenades being thrown into a movie theater. But, you know, how do you talk about <laughs> Roman Polanski? Yes. It's a tough one. It's it's certainly a conversation with lots of possible landmines. <laughs> I'm glad you asked the question, though, because we did have a conversation about it after the movie. It was just like, yeah, like Kevin Spacey, like it was nice seeing him in the film again. He does a great job, you know, um, and I think there's, you know, a tendency to, I don't know, psychologize and editorialize a lot. And I certainly am guilty of that. But I I really enjoy him in this movie. Yeah, Full stop. He- He's good, and and he's good enough in the movie that even knowing more about who he is and what kind of a person he is, and that he's now persona non grata, and I'm also not mm-hmm. in a big hurry to see him again either. Yep. Um. He it didn't affect my enjoyment of Ella Confidential. He's in a masterpiece, and he's a good part of the masterpiece, and it's really too bad that he's such an asshole. But yes, yeah. <laughs> agreed. Well, good good to know that L.A. Confidential remains um, untainted. You know that it still stands as as a flawless flawless picture. It's in, too in much of a juggernaut. Days. It can't be brought down by one person's by uh, one person. No miscreant. Plus, you get to see behavior. him die, and that's satisfying. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's a fabulous scene, as yep. you said. It's really beautiful, and the way he sort of exhales Rolo Tomasi and says it, just sort of like a you little can smile. Hear his chest squeezing. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's so good. <laughs> yeah. I think we could probably talk about this film for several more hours, probably longer than the runtime of, <laughs> of L.A. Confidential itself. Um, but we, we do have to wrap at some point here. Yeah. Um, the, the film, again, of course, is L.A. Confidential, a masterpiece, one of the best of the 1990s. And our guest today has been uh, the incredible Jesse Hawken. Thank you so much, Jesse. Thank you for having me. We appreciate talk about this movie all day. (laughs) It's I I didn't think the movie really fits in with my uh, podcast because, you know, I don't really need to talk anybody into watching L.A. Confidential the way that I do to get you to watch um, 52 pick up the John Frankenheimer Mm -hmm. movie, you know, like movies that need an advocate. But yeah, but but L.A. Confidential is one of my very favorite movies. And it was a great opportunity to talk to you guys about it and a cheap excuse to watch it again. Well, Jesse, would you could you take a moment, maybe um, you, you've you've touched on it a little bit, but tell people a little bit about Junk Filter, what it what it is, what it's about, and and absolutely, yeah. Junk where Filter people is a, can find your work. Well, Junk Filter is a podcast that I started in November, and I'm about to record episode forty with our mutual friend Zach Vasquez. We're doing deep cover, but it was a podcast that I I. I wanted to sort of it was something that was born out of the pandemic because we're all trapped in our homes. All these people that I enjoy on Twitter that are keeping me sane, all these podcasts that I'm (laughs) listening to that are keeping me sane. And I thought, you know what? I want to do a podcast. And not only that, but I want to talk to the very funny and interesting people that I already talk to in the DMs on Twitter and people that I joke around with, people I admire, 
Um, and let's talk about some things that we would be talking about anyway, if we were online, but let's have an actual conversation and let's get to meet each other and maybe even become friends and to give people something to listen to and to think about. And if we're all trapped in our homes, uh, what should I be watching? Uh, maybe this podcast can give me an idea of what would be good to watch or to listen to, or films that actually are speaking to our current moment or, Films that maybe were misunderstood at the time that are interesting to reconsider now. And music as well. I mean, you know, I, f for fuck's sakes, I've done three episodes on Steely Dan. <laughs> yes, you have. <laughs> and I'm going to do another the nation. one. And I'm he is unapologetic, the nation. <laughs> folks. But yeah, so it's been fun. And, uh, you know, I, I've, I've gotten a lot of, uh, I've learned a lot as well. And I've had... Uh, you know, people that I, I think that I've also shown people who like the podcast about other interesting and fun people and podcasts, too. So I think it's like the rising tide lifting all boats. It's been great to get to meet you guys, too. And, you know, like it's um, it's it's great. And it's something that I uh, just decided in this time with all the weird popularity that I have on Twitter that I have to start producing content. <laughs> so that's, I did. That's you're the logical living, step. You're when... living the dude's rock ethos, Jesse. Yeah, you really much. are just, just making friends and sharing. It's we, we just watched Return of the King and Aaron said to me, this movie is about sharing loads, bros sharing loads. And I was like, <laughs> can I quote you on that? Like what? <laughs> It's hard to say if those are that's dudes the, rock that's movies. The next There's a little bit of dudes rock. Yeah. <laughs> no, different I, conversation. The Lord, the Lord of the Rings movies are certainly dudes rock, but the ideal dudes rock scenario is two guys who are even better friends at the end of the movie than they were at the beginning. Yeah. Yes, precisely. And they're uplifting each other's friendship and stuff. You know, these are all very important <laughs> concepts to me. Um, yeah. yeah. So it, it's been fun. I, I like defending the indefensible on the show. I like spotlighting musicians and, uh, films and filmmakers that people should know more about and uh and i'm actually going on pure instinct i'm not uh trying desperately to get certain people on the show i'm i'm thinking that this would be a good person to talk to i don't care whether mm -hmm. you have 300 followers or 300,000 followers Do, will we have a good conversation yes or no that's my basic uh plan so it's been yes. going well i'm very happy we're very and happy you, with the output too it's uh it's a great show and you can find it on your favorite platforms. It's called Junk Filter. We have a Twitter account called Junk Filter Pod, which I monitor. We do have a patreon.com slash junk filter. And me, myself, am always tweeting and being extremely online on Twitter <laughs> under the name of Jesse Hawken. Yeah, fabulous. Um, it's, it's a great podcast. You are excellent online. I, I'm not just yanking your chain when I say S tier poster and cinephile and and podcaster. We we have come to several uh, fantastic titles in the midst of the pandemic, courtesy of your show and and all of your incredible guests on, on your you program. So, so uh, just it, yeah, cannot recommend Junk Filter enough. Go listen, subscribe, um, and uh, you can do the same with us too if you're listening to this. Maybe for the first time. Thank you so much. And uh, you can follow us at Hit Factory Pod. Subscribe at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Um, shout out to our capitalist overlord. Her name is Linda. She's a great financier of the show. Uh, and we will catch you next time. Thank you, everybody. Remember, dear readers, you heard it here first. 
off the record on the QT and very hush hush. If you 